Well, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, don't they? A picture is worth a thousand words, and a well-done cartoon might be even more. Would you agree? <laughs> Catherine, who just read for us from Ezekiel, is sure to email me cartoons from the newspaper. In fact, when I started writing the sermon, I thought Catherine needs to read the scripture. I think this one is self-explanatory. <laughs> Now the vehicle in front here is driven by a little guy with red horns, and the car reads, Good Intentions Paving. The speech bubble says, let's follow this guy. It looks like he knows the way to the nearest town. And here's one for Halloween. It says, if I knew I'd end up here today, I would have worn a different costume. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine, for sharing those with me. I shared them with everybody. Now, years ago, a student-run weekly newspaper at Fuller Theological Seminary included a cartoon as well. And I wish I had saved a picture of it. This was long before cell phones made that really easy. It depicted two different men. One had a beard and wore a tunic on a seminary campus. This is an obvious depiction of Jesus. He stood before a desk at which sat a man holding some papers, wearing glasses, under a bookcase a mile high. Again, on a seminary campus, this is an obvious depiction of a professor. So you have Jesus in a professor's office, and the caption simply read, The Doctor of Ministry Office. One speech bubble hovered above the professor's head, and he said to Jesus, Well, young man, I would love to admit you into our academic program, but your dissertation proposal is merely a bunch of pithy little stories. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, on a seminary campus, this stung a bit. In the midst of preparation for ministry and mission, even those present at a place like Fuller can become distracted by the books on the shelf, the papers to be written, the degrees to be awarded, and to not have ears to hear, to not have eyes to see the truth that Jesus lays bare in his pithy little stories, the truth that Jesus seeks to communicate in his parables. We heard one of them last week from Pastor Brian, the parable of the sower. It's brilliantly portrayed in another seminary chapel. This is Gordon Conwell in Charlotte, North Carolina. I love how all three or four depictions of what the seeds can do after they've been scattered on the ground are included here in this one painting. And yet Jesus is stepping out of the painting and into the world. And, and with him, notice on your far right, bottom right, with Jesus is the miraculous yield of 30, 60, 100 fold. You see, a picture really is worth a thousand words. And in the passage before us this morning, Jesus continues speaking in parables. He uses the same metaphor that we were introduced to last week. Hear God's word in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. Jesus said to them, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? Which is obvious, right? We would all agree, especially those of us that pay the electricity bills, right? But he continues, For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. Whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open, which I'm not sure everyone would agree with. Think about it. Can you recall any world leaders? 
any politicians, any, anyone in the film industry who might have preferred what was hidden to remain hidden? Can you think of anybody who would prefer something that wouldn't have been brought out into the open? And yet Jesus' parables, pithy little stories that wouldn't actually get him into a doctoral program, these are not scholarly arguments. These are invitations to a whole new life. These are word pictures that describe how God works in the world. Jesus' intention is that the kingdom of God be made manifest like a lamp on a table, that what has been hidden would be disclosed, that what has been concealed would be brought out into the open. That's what Jesus is getting at. But that requires effort on the part of the hearer. That's why Jesus continues. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Which sounds really strange to us, doesn't it? Does it sound strange to anybody else or just me? Jesus says, if you have, you're going to get more. And if you don't have, what little you have is taken from you. In our culture, in a late modern capitalist society, this sounds a lot like Jesus is saying, the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. And that's just the way it is. But the measure Jesus is talking about is very different than the measure we think of. You see, in a little first century Galilean town, flour would be sold uh, according to the amount a buyer wanted to spend. For us, flour is, what, $2 a pound? Of course, that's pre-inflation numbers. Now it's like $74.50, right? In the first century, the question would not be, here's some flour, give, give me $2, please. The question would be, how much would you like to spend? And so depending on how many denarii you've got in your pocket, that would influence how much the seller would measure for you. And so this is important. Jesus is saying that the measure people bring to him, the measure that we are willing to spend on Jesus, is the measure that we will get in return from his parables. This is not the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer, and who haves will have more and the have-nots will have less. If that's what Jesus is saying, then our moment for mission was kind of a waste, wasn't it? All the other things that Jesus would talk about, trying to care for people who, who are in need, it would kind of not make a lot of sense with this passage, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, how much will you bring me? How much do you want to learn? How much do you want the light to shine into your life? Would you like it to be hidden under the blanket? Would, would you like the light thrown under the bed? No. Think about it this way. If Bing and I got tickets to the Walt Disney Concert Hall to see the Los Angeles Philharmonic playing Antonin Dvorak's Symphony No. 9, through the course of 40 minutes or so, we would hear the exact same thing, right? The same four movements, the adagio, the largo, the scherzo, the finale. Did I get that right? <laughs> we would hear the same instruments, the flutes, the oboes, the clarinets, the massoons. Remember, the tuba only comes in in the third movement, but he sits there the whole time. Now talk about a nice payday, right? Yeah. Anyway, we would hear the same thing over 40 minutes. 
the same exact notes, the same four movements, all the same instruments. But Bing has a bachelor's degree in piano performance. Bing has a master's of music in choral conducting. Bing has a doctorate in musical arts and choral and orchestral conducting. He has for decades conducted choirs and orchestras around the world. Did you know that about Bing? This is true. I'm not making this up. I pulled it off of his uh, resume. <laughs> now, Bing would notice when the symphony switches time signatures from 4-8 to 2-4 in the first movement. Bing would notice when they went from E minor to C major in the third movement. We would hear the same exact symphony, but we would have very different experiences. We would hear the same exact sounds, but listen to very different things. I would walk out of the Walt Disney Concert Hall and I would say, ha, that was fun. <laughs> hey, Bing, should we get a hot dog from one of those street vendors? That's what I would say. That's the best you'd get from me. <laughs> Bing would walk out and he would have been moved because Bing would be listening to something different than what I would hear. Are we together here? Are, are we understanding this? That's what Jesus is getting at. And Jesus wants us to be moved. He does not want us only to hear. That would be like lighting a lamp and tossing a towel over it, tossing it under the bed. Jesus wants us to be moved. He wants the light to shine brightly. But he recognizes that some will toss a blanket over the lamp. By the way, this is why you've heard preachers say, when you hear something meaningful in a sermon, it says more about you than it does about the preacher. Have you ever heard that before? And you've thought, oh, that's just their way of trying to find some sort of false modesty. Instead of just saying, thank you, I worked hard on the sermon, right? Yeah. But that's what Jesus is getting at. When you hear something in a sermon, it means that your ears are tuned to hear God's voice. It means that your heart is ready to receive it. You know, at times, some of y'all have thanked me for things that I've said in a sermon, which I have not said in the sermon. <laughs> Sometimes that goes really well. Other times, not so much. Just two weeks ago, I was meeting with someone in their home after the sermon, and they thanked me for what I shared. And I didn't say it. What does that mean? It means that even streaming from home that Sunday, they were listening for God's word and not just Curtis's words. They had ears to hear what God had to say, and so they heard it, even though I didn't say it. Just like Bing would hear a lot more from the Los Angeles Philharmonic than I would hear, because he has ears to hear. Jesus continues with a similar metaphor to our text last week. And if you think about cartoons, sometimes there's those panels, right? One, two, three, maybe four in a row. I think Jesus intends that we see the connection with what Brian shared last week. It was too many verses for one person to preach on, so we split it up. But Jesus wants to hear these in a row, right? We've got the parable of the sower. And now he continues with two more very short cartoons. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. And all by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. 
Again, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. And yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. As many movements as they could take in, as many instruments as they could hear. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. In the first century, God's people eagerly expected that when the Messiah arrived, it would be obvious and overpowering. Like, say, riding into Jerusalem, the week of Passover, on a big white horse, ready to raid and rob and ransack the Romans. It was something that couldn't be missed when the Messiah would arrive. That's why we read from Ezekiel 31. The image of a mighty cedar was tied to the nation of Assyria. Assyria was like that mighty cedar. It was known for its strength, its longevity, its resistance to decay. And that picture was worth a thousand words for God's people. They longed to be like Assyria, tall and proud, with branches and boughs for the birds to nest in. Who wouldn't? want to be like Assyria. But just after where Catherine stopped reading, God declares that even that great tree has fallen. It has been cut down and left alone. Its boughs fell on the mountains. Its branches lay in the ravines. And Assyria is no more. And so it's no mistake that Jesus' metaphor about the good news of God's kingdom is a little different. He tells stories about the smallest of seeds that grow into the largest of plants. About scattered seeds sprouting and growing when no one knows or understands how it happens. You see, Jesus is radically reorienting our ideas about mighty cedars. He is painting a picture worth a thousand words. He's creating a cartoon to clarify what it really looks like when the Messiah arrives. And it is not obvious or overpowering. Jesus will not force his way into any of our lives, just like he did not force his way into Jerusalem. That's why it's so important that these are more than pithy little stories, sort of spiritual Aesop's fables. It's so important that we see the mistake of that professor in that cartoon decades ago at Fuller Seminary's paper. These are Jesus' means of communicating for those with ears to hear, with eyes to see. Maybe we could put it this way. The stories Jesus tells are for people who want God. The stories Jesus tells are for people who want God. God as he actually is and not the God that they have somehow dreamed up. Jesus fully expects that many will miss it. What's hidden will stay hidden because instead of God, they want the trees of Assyria. They want power and permanence and prosperity. But if we want God, we will learn patience We will learn prayer. And it might seem like passivity. 
but instead it's trusting in the activity of the divine. Henry Nouwen once put it this way. He said, patience is a hard discipline. It is not just waiting until something happens over which we have no control. The arrival of the bus, the end of the rain, the return of a friend, the resolution of a conflict. No. He says, patience is not waiting passively until someone else does something. Patience asks us to live in the moment to the fullest to be completely present to the moment, to taste the here and now, to be where we actually are. When we are impatient, we try to get away from where we are. We behave as if the real thing will happen tomorrow, later, and somewhere else. Let's be patient and trust that the treasure we look for is hidden in the ground on which we stand. Let's be patient and trust that the treasure we look for is hidden in the ground on which we stand. You see, because that's the ground that Jesus declares that God has scattered seeds. Not seeds like Assyria's political power and prosperity and permanence. No. These are a different kind of seeds that invite us to prayer and to patience. Every once in a while, um, especially when I'm on Facebook, I'm not sure what the algorithm is, but um, I see this sort of um, pop-up sort of ad, and it's kind of like work pay, workplace slogans. You ever see anything like this on there? Yeah. Um, one of them that I see fairly regularly, and I'm not sure what this says about me, they're trying to sell me a placard that I would put in my office or a mug from which I would drink that says, and I'm quoting, nobody cares, work harder. <laughs> I did buy one from a friend, but I won't tell you who it is. <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be like if you walk into your supervisor's office and he had that sign above his desk, nobody cares, work harder? Can you imagine what that would be like if you, if you he came in to meet with me and I was just drinking from that coffee cup? <laughs> nobody cares, work harder. But let's think about it just for a split second. Um, the shoe fits, doesn't it? That says something about our time and place. That says something about our culture. The world tells us if something is going to happen, we have to make it happen, right? The world tells us that if something's going to happen, we have to make it happen. Acceptance into the right school, being offered the right job, working our way up that ladder. This thinking even creeps into our spiritual lives. There are friends and family, um, neighbors and coworkers who we would like to know the love of God and Jesus. We see them carrying a weight of guilt for something that they did long ago. We see them carrying the shame of not being who they thought that they should be. And, that, and yet we've met this Jesus who has something to say about guilt that we carry, who has something to say about the shame that causes us to hide from others. And we so badly want this friend or, or family member, this coworker, this neighbor, to know the, the freedom that only faith in Jesus can bring, don't we? And we live in this culture that says, well, if it's going to happen, you better make it happen. It's your job. I love how John Stott puts it. He says, um, our job is to scatter seeds. Our job is not the results of those seeds. That's God's job. That's too big for our job descriptions. Would you agree? 
And yet the world tells us if something's going to happen, we're the ones that have to make it happen. But the kingdom of God is not a kingdom where no one cares to work harder. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of a king who cares for us and who works behind the scenes whether we lie down or we get up. We're called to merely scatter seeds like Jesus scatters seeds. And remember that the seeds that Jesus scatters on the ground do not demand that we make something happen if something is going to happen. It's a very curious picture Jesus paints here, isn't it? Um, about a man scattering seed and then, and then lying down and getting up. Did that, was, that, was that strike anyone else as kind of strange? For those with ears, let them hear. Right? This man who scatters seed and then goes to bed and then gets up. Very, very curious. All the while not knowing what the seed will do. It's been said that um, in the history of humankind, there have been two great revolutions. Uh, the first is when instead of roaming around as hunter-gatherers, somebody figured out farming, right? They, they dropped a seed in the ground, and the dirt called out to the seed, send me a little root. Then something up above the earth said, send me a little shoot. And in doing so, the seed died, but the, the plant or the bush or the tree was born, sprouting leaves and shade and fruit. That's the first revolution in the history of humankind, and Jesus used that first one as a metaphor for his own life. What does he say in the Gospel of John? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And Jesus speaks that way to open our eyes to the second revolution that has changed human history. When the author of life himself, when Jesus himself was buried in the ground. See, this seemingly pithy little parable in Mark 4 points forward to that. Jesus is telling the story of his own Holy Week experience when he will not go into Jerusalem on a big white horse to raid and rob and ransack the Romans. No, he will go in on a donkey. And they will still reject him. And they will still crucify him. And they will still bury him in the ground. See, see, Jesus is the one who scatters the seeds and then lies down, not knowing whether he will get back up. Jesus is the one who scatters seeds and lies down, not only to sleep at night, but in death, in the grave. Jesus lies down, but he gets back up. Amen? Jesus is telling us a story in Mark 4, a pithy little parable. He's telling us the story of his own life. And so... The patience and the prayer that he invites us into that is so different than the power and the permanence and the prosperity of the Romans, of the Assyrians, of the Egyptians, the patience and prayer he invites us into is the patience and the prayer of Jesus' own life. He does not invite us into a faith that is about himself, but a faith that is his own. That though it might seem like Saturday, Sunday's coming. And sometimes it seems like the longest Saturday, doesn't it? But the good news is that if we have the faith of Jesus, faith in Jesus, the one who has lied down and gotten back up, Sunday is coming. And hear the good news, friends. Sunday paper has the most and the best cartoons anyway, doesn't it? <laughs> Father, we give you thanks that the stories Jesus tells the pictures he paints, the cartoons he creates are like a light that beams brightly 
that beams brightly into our hearts, that illuminates our minds. And that we can trust that if something is going to happen in the kingdom of God, that it is not only up to us. That we can have patience in prayer. Would you teach us those things, Lord? We need them so dearly. We live in a world that strives for the mighty cedars of Assyria. For power and permanence and prosperity. Would you teach us patience in prayer that trusts the smallest of seeds scattered about? That we can lie down and we can get up because we're not in control of the world. That's too big for our job description. Call us to be faithful in what you've called us to. That as we're faithful, the gospel will be fruitful because it's your good news. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And for the sake of your inbreaking kingdom, it continues to grow around the world, even when we don't see it. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen.